All right, we are back for our third and final segment. I want to note uh, with some pleasure that uh, Little Brown and Company sent us a copy without asking of Sam Keen's third book. In this case, it's titled The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, which, of course, every book seems to have to have a subtitle these days. Subtitled The History of the Human Brain as Revealed by the True Stories of Trauma, Madness, and Recovery. We have previously interviewed Mr. Keen about his... Two prior works, The Violinist's Thumb and The Disappearing Spoon. They were both good books, and I dare say good interviews as well. I'm looking forward to a third go-around with Sam Keen, hopefully on next week's program. All right, we've sounded some gloomy notes in today's program, so let's do some science topics, which always seems to perk us up. And I want to thank New Scientist magazine, as we often do, for, first of all, it's great scientific reporting, and in, and in this case... Answering a question we posed on this program some weeks back of what the hell's going on with the Voyager 1 spacecraft? Is it, is it in the solar system or is it outside the solar system? NASA couldn't seem to make up its mind, so we want to thank Nigel Henbest for his piece in the April 5th edition of New Scientist titled, Are We Nearly There Yet? To quote from the piece, heard the joke about deja vu several times? And you've probably heard the news about NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft leaving the solar system. Its departures hit the headlines many, many times, only for NASA to change its mind. Over the past decade, the veteran space probe has been in, out, and even shaken all about. Last September, though, it looked finally like this game of space hokey-pokey was finally over. Voyager 1's normally cautious project director, Ed Stone, declared that after 35 years, the probe had left for real. This is Humankind's Historic Leap into Interstellar Space. Asks author Nigel Henbest, so why has it been so hard to tell if Voyager 1 has crossed the border? And can we be sure that it really has made it this time? It's something we've asked in this program previously, and we're curious to see how, uh, how that got answered here. Mr. Henbest notes that mission control isn't what it used to be for the Voyager uh, spacecraft. At one time... Uh, there was a, a panel of, of people at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena monitoring the spacecraft. Yours truly was privileged to attend an event down there in 1989 when Voyager 2, its sister craft, whipped past the planet Neptune. These days, however, Mission Control is no longer located at JPL. Instead, it's a single-story building next to a busy traffic junction just north of Pasadena, where when you go inside, you find a small open-plan office. It's empty apart from two pairs of computer screens, along with tables of figures, one set green, the other blue. Turns out the two blue screens are displaying messages from Voyager 1. The two green screens are full of posts from Voyager 2. The author notes there's a couple differences here. Voyager 2 is relaying conditions about the heliosphere, the giant magnetic bubble surrounding our sun. But Voyager 1 does appear to be flying a bit higher. Now, Voyager 1 is 127 times further out from the sun than is our home planet of Earth. It's now four times further out than the planet Neptune. And since we've never been there before, we here at uh, Mankind Central, we're not absolutely sure what we're going to find. Peace quotes Priscilla Frisch at the University of Chicago, noting that uh, far from being a featureless void... Interstellar space contains clouds of gas and dust that are being blown about by the force of ancient supernova explosions. Now, luckily for us, uh, most of Voyager 1's instruments are still working. They shut off the cameras a long time ago, but uh, 
NASA's limping this craft along, using the decay of some radioactive elements to power what, um, what equipment is left. And apparently in August of 2012, Voyager 1's instruments measured a dramatic drop in the number of solar wind particles. At the same time, they detected a much higher rate of the arrival of cosmic rays, which do come in from interstellar space. The sun's heliosphere, our magnetic shield, does tend to protect us a bit from these cosmic rays, so their, uh, their uptick indicated that perhaps we were now out you know, beyond the sun's influence. Well, it turns out there's a third indicator on board that's refusing to fall into place. Voyager 1 has an onboard compass, and it should have picked up an abrupt change in the magnetic field at the end of the heliosphere. Yet, Voyager 1's compass is still indicating the same thing it did shortly after liftoff. This left NASA scientists sitting on the fence, but uh, in April of last year, Voyager 1 felt the gas around it shaking violently as a giant eruption from the sun, which took place 400 days earlier, finally got out to where Voyager 1 was. The strength of the pounding showed scientists that Voyager 1 was in a region far denser than the interior of the heliosphere. And it was at that point that Ed Stone made the de declaration that Voyager 1 is now bathed in matter from other stars. What surprises me about this piece is that uh, the difference in density between what's inside the heliosphere and, and what's outside is apparently 40 times denser outside than it is um, in the area influenced by our sun, which I suppose is what we might expect from a wall of gas that's piling up at a, uh, at a boundary. Now, curiously, there's another spacecraft that's uh, related to this story of the magnetic fields out there in space. There's a, a craft called the Interstellar Boundary Explorer, IBEX. That satellite is near the Earth, but it's mapping the edge of the solar system. It's doing so without leaving Earth orbit. IBEX looks for high-speed atoms traveling back toward the Earth from uh, the border out there with the, of, of interstellar space. Apparently, particles go out there. They're ionized. They apparently hit this border of interstellar gas, become neutral atoms again, and then go shuffling off into space in all directions. We can apparently pick this up here from Earth orbit. Surprising piece of data has come back from the satellite showing that there's a ribbon apparently out there at the region of at the edge of the solar system that's sending back far more atoms than other areas. It's believed that this ribbon is caused by the magnetic field outside of the solar system. So the orientation of this IBEX ribbon reveals the direction of the magnetic field in nearby interstellar space. Now, when you look back at Voyager 1 and you see that it hasn't changed its orientation, which it should, based on this IBEX data, well, you got a bit of a problem. It's believed that Voyager 1 is indisputably in a region of dense interstellar matter. So how is it that it's still being uh, magnetically oriented one way? Well, people are supposing that it might be flying through a finger of interstellar gas that has poked through the heliosphere. Could be. To know for sure, we're going to have to keep that spacecraft alive a little bit longer. NASA expects that it's got enough power to keep things going till the year 2020. After that, they're not so sure. They note the main drain on power is the heaters, which keep the electronics in the spacecraft at 18 to 20 degrees centigrade, which is basically room temperature here at Earth. But they do have the option of just uh, seeing if the spacecraft will still operate in the cold of deep space. Maybe it will. Anyway, pretty cool stuff. I also want to talk about an article from the same issue of New Scientist about the Denisovans, an entirely different species of human beings which we know about based on a finger bone and a tooth. 
we have no fossils of, of these people, and yet we know that they are distinctly different from Homo sapiens and Neanderthal man based on their DNA, which we have managed to fingerprint. How much time we got, Mr. McMillan? Very little. Well, then I guess I have very little time to tell this article, so I'm, I'm not going to try and make a hash of it by rushing through it in a minute or two. We'll get to it on next week's program. I think, I think that's fair enough, because this is a hell of a tale. I just want to excerpt one quote from the article, which is that if the unexpected discovery of the Denisovans tells us anything, is that there's a lot to learn still about human evolution. Despite decades of research, we have missed an entire species that lived relatively recently and was geographically widespread. Given that, it's a safe bet that we can expect plenty more surprises in the years to come. Now, I've gotten an email over the past few weeks from our old pal down in Hollywood, Mr. David Rosenblum, the agent to the agent to the stars. So I think it's high time we brought him back on the show. It's our pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, David Rosenblum. Hey, Doc, uh, good to hear your voice. You know, I, I was listening to your last show online, and you sounded worse than Bob Seger. Yeah, I, I've had some allergies lately, David. I'm sorry. Hey, hey, by the way, did I ever tell you about the time Bob crashed my pool party, got drunk, and along with Buddy Hackett broke my diving board? No, and I'm not sure we have time today. All right, fine, fine, fine. But look, what I need to do today, Doug, is share with your listeners some breaking news about Shakespeare. Breaking news. Well, it was his 450th birthday last month, you know. Well, if, if you assume the Stratford man wrote those plays, yeah. Well, professors from Columbia U to Catman do accept the guy, but not you? Well, his will doesn't make any mention of plays or even books. Will's will, huh? Well, look, maybe he used the public library. I don't know. I do know, my rabbi says, Shakespeare sought counsel from his rabbi back in the day. Shakespeare was Jewish. Well, he was a giant in show business. Well, that much is true. Hey, and, and you know, I'm told that the original draft was called The Taming of the Jew. David, if Shakespeare was Jewish, don't you think Shylock would have come across better? Shylock, Shmylock. Look, I just want to bring Shakespeare to new audiences, which I will do once a few... Uh, yeah, commercial tie-ins are secured, you know. No, I'm, I'm afraid to ask. Well, what's wrong with slightly changing the titles in exchange for some product placement funding? I ask you. Like? Like Troilus and the Toyota Cressida. Uh-huh. The Merry Wives of Windex. <laughs> How's that going? Uh, well, we're in negotiations. Uh, how about Titus Andronico's Pizza? Nice. How about... Timex of Athens. Good luck with all these, David. And sci-fi is huge, you know that. So if we attract new young audiences with modern titles, well, where's the harm? What, what titles would these be? Well, look, 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 look. The film classic The Forbidden Planet, that was based on The Tempest, right? Uh, I guess so. So, in the same vein, we do a sci-fi spin-off, like Love Labor's Lost in Space. <laughs> Please. Look, I, I can see it now, Doug. It's perfect. Look, I know for sure I can get the old Robbie the Robot from the show. Imagine his danger, danger, Don Adriano. Yeah, it'd be a hoot. <laughs> all right. All right, look. What do you think of the Coriolanus Force, huh? Is that like the Coriolis Force? Yeah. What wrong name. It's not Coriolanus. Ah, uh, look, everyone hates that play anyway. Look, forget sci-fi. Perhaps you'd prefer a horror theme. Or perhaps not. Everything now is vampires, werewolves, monsters, zombies. Yeah. Well, what would you say to 12th Night of the Living Dead? <laughs> I think I would say nothing. All right, all right. How about The Winter's Tales from the Crypt? 
Well, there's there's plenty of potential tragedy there somewhere, I think. Hamlet, Prince of Darkness. David, are you taking your meds? Hey, look, just wait till we're winning Tonys, okay? You know, I don't think anybody's going to want to go see The Merchant of Venice Beach Party as a musical, David. That's my hunch. Hey, that's not bad. It's not like we try and turn a Shakespearean tragedy into some low comedy. You know, one ill-advised associate of mine did suggest Abbott and Othello. <laughs> but, I, you know, I said no. I don't think that could possibly work. Even with a top-notch straight man. No way. Well, you know, that, that does seem wise. Uh, but wh- why don't you just stick to the real plays? Well, these are the real plays. It's just a few modifications here and there, you know, for more star power potential. Like Romeo and Julie Andrews. You know, I might do quite well with that in music. A musical Romeo and Juliet. Hey, do you ever hear of West Side Story? All right. Okay, I'll give you that one. And waiting in the wings, we got All's Well That Ends Welcome Back, Carter. Mm. Be advised, Doug, I am going to the skirball with a Julius Caesar sure to get noticed. We're going to enhance the play's historical authenticity. Well, how's that? Well, look, where did Bill Shakespeare get his material? Those old Latin writers, right? So our play, in exactly this vein, will be entirely in pig Latin. Igpe Atenle. Oreke! Look, everyone understands pig Latin, Doug, so we can still stick to the timeless language of Shakespeare, yet we're going to enhance its Roman flair. It's a win-win. Hmm. That Latin sound is inspirational, Doug. After I saw the rehearsals, I, I was ready to invade Gaul. Look, five minutes with our Caesar, and you'll feel like you're in the Roman Forum swapping shekels for asparagus. Look, our production has the support of the Pope, by the way. The Pope in Rome. No, the Pope in Pomona. Yes, the Pope in Rome. Look, the Vatican thinks anything Roman may help bring new members of the church. Yeah. Yeah, and I, w- I wonder who sold them on that idea. If they got their hopes up, who am I to discourage? And for Caesar, look, we love Danny DeVito. And we've got, check it out, we've locked David Hasselhoff up for Anthony. Is he going to sing? Picture it, Doug. Anthony, the Hoff, steps on a chunk of marble and says, Ends fray, omens ray, untreatment K. En lay e may or ye ears a. And then he breaks into Hooked on a Feeling. There won't be a dry eye in the house. You know, I would advise your team to obtain all the insurance premiums they can on this one, David. Look, look, let me come back and explain it better when opening night gets near, okay? Well, I, I think you've laid it out quite vividly. I mean, just, uh, just bring me back in June. All right, we will. Take care, Doug. I can't stop this feeling deep inside of me. Girl, you just don't realize what you do to me when you hold me in your arms so tight. You let me know everything's all. That pretty much does it for today's program. Our thanks to Sidney Norris, Will Durst, and David Rosenblum, of course. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. At least, I hope so. Hey,